You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Richie Heron, also known as Tulip R on Twitter, is a 35-year-old detransitioning male who spent almost a decade living as a trans woman. Prior to his fixation on gender, Richie had spent most of his life struggling with debilitating anxiety and obsessional thoughts. As you'll hear, he's brilliant, articulate, and very compelling. But in his teens and young adult life, he forced his big personality into submission. He was terrified of the truth that he was gay. Internalized shame, body hatred, and extreme isolation only fed into his OCD. In the throes of all this, he found an online forum about gender dysphoria, and everything changed in an instant as Richie developed a new goal and a new OCD obsession. In this interview, he delivers a moving and powerful account of what happened next. And keep in mind, this is the story of a vulnerable adult, well over 18, but still the victim of a system that missed the red flags over and over again. In 2018, after much coaxing from the professionals, he underwent a procedure under the UK's National Health Service, which removed his genitals. The regret set in almost immediately. Richie is now working towards suing the NHS for failing to address the serious mental health issues during the diagnostic process. He's active on Twitter and on his brilliant Substack, promoting and reposting stories of detransitioners, particularly highlighting the hidden stories of men, bringing awareness to the public about what he calls the medical scandal of our time. Here's our conversation with Richie. Hi, Stella. I am so excited for you to introduce our guest today. Yeah, we have the one and only Richie Heron. Is that right? Your Heron is your surname, Richie? That is right, Stella. And uh, thank you very much for having me. We're delighted to have you. We're, you. You know, you came, I suppose, in like a rocket into this discourse a few months ago. And um, I think you, you made everybody sit up. And you made everybody listen because suddenly it was the the, the voice of the male detransitioner, and you didn't you didn't t- you didn't pull any you know punches with it. You went for it, and you said very straight, "This is a very serious position to be in," and you gave everything that you could. So thank you for being so brave. Thank you for speaking up for the male detransitioner because I think they've been lost a lot in in this discussion, and I think you've in a way become a leader for for male detransitioners and I'm glad you have. Thank you very much Star. Um, That's very very kind. I didn't intend for that to happen but things just happen I suppose. Um, uh, I don't I really don't know where to start. I think what I was saying is because I've came from I've came from the other side completely and that's what people really need to understand. You may have never have heard of anyone like me because I wasn't on social media I wasn't screaming and shouting I was I was like living me life as it were 
um, and I was just trying to trying to get on. Um, and then I found after I had surgery, um, I kind of woke up from what I would call this. This I'm speaking for me and me only, but I was definitely in like a hyper hyper fixated obsession where I just had a transition. There was all these sort of different um, goals and points that I could reach to that I, I was desperate to hit them. And when it came to the the surgery and stuff, that's where I was like totally, I wasn't really for it. Um, and this is where it gets very complicated because I'm trying to like cram all these years with therapy and everything else and my experiences with the gender clinic, my experiences online. People don't understand understand how powerful these these factors are in making you do these things, which are like when you sit back and think quite insane. Um sorry, Sal, I can see your Could you that. come at the beginning then? Could you tell us like just at the beginning where it all came from? You know what I mean? Oh. Yeah, your childhood, like oh, before, on. maybe before transitioning, or what brought you to transition? Uh, I was an extremely anxious kid, hyper, hyper anxious, um, a little bit of a hypochondriac as well. Uh, the youngest of three from a working class background, um, in the brought up in the northeast of England, which isn't the bastion of culture and diversity, I'm afraid. So growing up as someone who was gay, um, and I realized that early on, but I did not accept it. And that's a difference. Like, you may know you're gay from a young age, but you don't accept them that as a different matter completely. Um, really struggled with that. Um, I struggled that for various reasons. A large part was the embedded cultural homophobia, um, the the messages I was getting from everywhere, basically. And I became extremely anxious about it. Now, um, because of my nature, and I've never been tested for autism, I am waiting a test, but I think that that is an overlapping factor where I tend to internalize a lot of stuff. And uh, I, I kind of internalized a lot of this anxiety. Um, And also there was a lot of like trauma in in my own life and online from a young age too. Um, and when I say trauma, people think it's got to be like this horrific incident that's extremely violent. And it, it's it's not about that. It can be anything that left a mark. And for me, I think from a young age, it was the first time I ever got caught wearing like me. I cringe, even cringe saying it now, even now I carry the shame, but... I was desperate to be a ballerina when I was seven. So my sister, who had long quit ballet because she's five years older, I took her old ballet tutu and was wearing it in secret and dancing around like the gay kid I was. I was just exploring me like, well, I was, you know. Um, this was before I had any sense of sexuality on like that. And that's what really kind of annoys me because you hear in this pipeline that um, all the males were like started by like doing something seedy in the sister's clothes or something like that. And I was like, for fuck's sake, I was like seven or eight years old. I wasn't on my mind at all. Um, what it was was the desire to, to want to express myself. That didn't mean I was a girl. 
that just meant that I found that that was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to be, I suppose I wanted to to do something prettier than all the dirty activities that boys were left with, you know. Um, and I really, really was, I think from a very young age, I was, I was bursting, I was a bursting queen that was desperate to come out and sing and dance, but I held that shit in. Um, there was... Mm. There were some points where it just completely, like, it would overtake completely, you know. Um, but uh, that developed a lot of anxiety from a young age. That developed in OCD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder, which came in the form of um, ruminations and checking ritualistic behaviours. Um, and by that, I mean, like, you, you do a certain routine and, and it doesn't make any sense. It could be like... You've got to touch um, a certain part of the door as you leave the room. And if you don't, your whole family is going to die and it means you're gay. And that's the sort of thing I was dealing with. And then that evolved into um, compulsive praying. Um, so I was praying essentially not to be gay and all that sort of thing. There was a little bit of, uh, I say a little bit, there was, I can't remember it clearly, but I think there was, it was a very harsh environment growing up in the sense that my mum and dad's relationship was a bit rocky. My dad was a minor. There is a stereotype of that. And unfortunately, that stereotype was a little bit true. Um, so that had a profound impact on me in, in school. Um, I was a right little shit till about 11 or 12. And then I just wasn't all of a sudden. I was always a short kid, even 10 or 11 amongst my peers I was short but I just didn't grow and everyone else did from 12 13 my puberty started about 15 16 and I don't have any um like sexual development issues I was just a late bloomer it's just it, I was just a late bloomer um and I was always known as being fiercely intelligent but also fiercely naive like you could tell me something I don't believe it and it didn't, and it always confused people as well because it didn't match with me. Like I could just pull out something out of my brain, like I just memorized, and everyone would be like, "How the hell did you know that?" And I'm like, "I don't know, I just do." But on a similar sense, I could get drawn into something, I could believe something, um, and I could believe anyone if they were convincing enough on whatever it was, and. That led me to uh, some scenarios online when I was younger where I would give myself uh, pictures of myself and share information with much older men. And that was a difficult period. And that's one that I'm reluctant to talk too much about. Um, and by the time I was in my early 20s, I, was, I had catastrophic mental health. You know, I was all this OCD wasn't being treated. So I started on SSRIs about 23, 24, and uh, I went to a psychologist when I was in, in 2013 um, because I became obsessed with the idea something terrible must have happened when I was younger for us to be the way I was. Uh, and a lot of terrible things did happen, but in my mind, it wasn't them. It was something secretive, you know, and it was just another way of delaying the blow of like really just processing the own, all my own crap that I went through. Um, and also missed out that high school was absolutely horrible. 
I lost my hearing due to a horrible infection when I was 14. Um, my ear was essentially rotten from the inside. So I'm short, fat, with a stinky ear. My parents are going through divorce. Oh. I'm getting groomed online. I was having a shit time. It was Sounds shit. like it. Can, can I ask you, I know you said your parents perhaps were distracted with their own marital difficulties, but like while you were going through all this and having this like debilitating OCD and the checking and the scrupulosity, uh, were your parents aware that you were in such distress? D- did anyone know? No. Wow. Would, would Did you know they didn't know? Were you completely on your own and... Would they have been very surprised to hear that you were in distress? I don't think they would have been surprised. But so my dad worked away from when I was like 12, 13. And then were eventually the start splitting when I was about 15. Um, my brother joined and served in the army when I was about, because uh, f- he's two and a half years older. So he went straight in like 16, right? When And then he went off into Iraq and stuff. Um, and my sister's five years old, and she went to university in a different city and never came back. So I and my mother was just basically trying to deal with everything. And, you know, um, I think it wasn't that she wasn't attentive. She had a lot of other stuff going on as well, and I was aware of it as well. But, and I became God. In, in one of your pieces, you said something like, I mistakenly thought, like my parents, that if I was in the safety of my bedroom, nothing bad could happen to me. So, like, there's that yeah. piece, too. Like, well, my kid's not running around in the streets. He's up just upstairs. What could go wrong? So that that's yeah. important, too. And yeah, a lot of people don't understand that I used the internet from a very young age as this was new. No one knew what it was capable of. No one... This... You've got to keep in mind that... Stranger Danger, which was a huge thing in the 80s up here, was all about people getting snatched from cars and playgrounds and whatever. They were aware that you could meet some dodgy people online, but you'd have to go and meet them, right? Nothing bad can possibly happen. And because I was always indoors because the bullying was really shit because my brother was no longer there um, and he had a reputation for um, sticking up for us, you know, when I was younger, Um and all of a sudden, that was just kind of, it was all gone. And I had a horrible, horrible time, 14, 17. I really didn't enjoy life at all. And, and can you just remind our audience, how old are you now? And what year was it when you were a teenager, approximately? I would have been a teenager from, uh, let's see, uh, 2001 till 2000. And eleven. And you're 35 now. Yes. Okay. Okay. Keep going. Just that context is helpful. Yeah. So no, no, that's so your your parents are getting a divorce. You're going through all this stuff on your own, and by the time you were in your 20s, pick it up from there. Um, I'm I'm like I'm not doing well at all. Um, I'm still. I had a job. I've had a job. I've been in work since I've been 17. Um. So I was holding down my job and it was the routine that was keeping us going, but I wasn't happy. I was I was massively overweight. By the time I was 22, I was about 147 kilograms, which is just under, just over 23 stone thereabouts. I was really large and uh, I hated myself, hated my body, didn't go outside and I'm 
on, on online 24-7, just playing games. And I would literally go to work, turn on the computer, play games, go to work. And that, that, that was my life. There was no... And occasionally, the odd times that I would go out, which was rare, and my friends were always... It wasn't like they weren't asking us. They just kind of stopped because I, would, I wouldn't go. Um, and I just kind of isolated myself completely. And by... By about 24, I, well, I actually started trying to go down the route for help from about 21. Um, just, you know, just doing little things like um, seeing like counsellors here or there just for general anxiety. But I was I was really, I wasn't like in a good place to pro- process. And anyway, I uh, approached me doctor, I think it was about 2012, 2013, and told him I was having, I'd been having panic attacks attacks since I was four years old and stuff like that and that's like in my medical history so that they could confirm it and uh I was like I'm dealing with this intense anxiety I'm dealing with these um symptoms of OCD the check-in the ruminations the intrusive thoughts and I just literally couldn't I was like I don't I can't go on like this if this goes on any longer I'm gonna top myself because this is just I, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not dealing with this going on. I I just couldn't. So, and I also became obsessed that the reason this was all this was because of the secret thing that had happened when I was younger. No one, no one possibly knew, and not even I knew. And I had to like piece all the bits together. I what. I wasn't well, and I was lost in conspiracy theories too. Okay, so you you believed that like you had basically re- repressed a traumatic memory, like some poignant yes. specific event that you had repressed. W- where did you get that yes. idea? What where did that come from, or was that maybe an expression of the OCD traits you were having at the time? You said conspiracies too, so yeah, yeah, it was a mix of everything. It was a mix of the OCD. Um, it was a mix of like. I had a very, and because I was in a conspiracy theories, I came across some some crazy theories about why people were gay, like gay was all because of trauma and stuff like that. And so I went down the route thinking that there was like this hidden thing that potentially happened. And that in itself is an OCD rumination, right? Oh, I know. So people don't understand like that is the perfect OCD rumination. If I, something must have happened, I can't remember it. So it's like you believe that's so real that you tried to so I saw the psychologist. And that was just like in the 90s, there'd been that repressed memory kind of thing. So you, you kind of, that would have been in the background, I presume, from media that yes. you, know, you can have this repressed memory and these things. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I often think people, you know, as, as a therapist, people often come to me and they want me to find the thing that made them mad what <laughs> what is it is, was it my dad or is it and it's like it's it's probably 14 different things exactly and it's yeah. all staring you right in the face you just don't yeah. want to see it you're like yeah. i don't care about all those other issues that i'm aware of it's these things that i'm that i can't possibly know because did, did in- people know just before you go on did people know you were gay at this stage like you're in your 20s now and you're overweight and you're playing your games my brother, like everyone online, used to like joke about the things I would say. Like you, re- like you know, they were they all kind of knew, but I was refusing to accept it. So they would kind of taunt us about it. My mother knew from a very very early age. She was like, I kind of knew when you were like three or four, to be honest. 
you're like, because <laughs> she, she was a childminder as well. And it was like, you're just different. You're really soft. You didn't like getting your hands dirty. You wanted to play dress up. You wanted a pop up kitchen. You were just like a complete, like you're a little bit of a stereotype, but it can't, it, and she would say this when I, when I lived with her, when I was in my early twenties, um, very early twenties, she was like, you know, you can love anyone you like, you know, it, it doesn't bother me. And I just want you to be happy. And I was just, I was too depressed and autistic to understand what the hell she meant. What she was saying is, I'm pretty sure you're gay and it's okay if you are. I'm not going to, it doesn't bother me at all sort of thing. And I even think as hard stern faced as my dad was, I think he kind of knew it from an early age too. Um, and my brother certainly did. He used to like, like when I, here's the story. When I came out as trans to my brother and I said, I, I went same and I said, I got something to tell you. He smirked and he went, you're gay, aren't you? And I went, no, it's worse than that. I'm trans. And, that was, and he just, he looked like somebody had sh- like punched him in the gut. Um, anyway, I'm skipping ahead from the story about what happened. Because this is pivotal. What happened was, me, me psychologist that I was saying wasn't specialised in OCD, but he brought across to us pure or this like where it's just mainly the rumination, the intrusive side. And he said, if I bring you on to the next level of psychotherapy for this repressed thing, it'll feed the obsession further. That so we need to work on you need to work on your OCD. And that was that was as we're coming to the end. And he delivered this challenge to us. So rather than accepting that challenge, my brain was And I can't remember if it was just that or at the very, very same time, and this would have been very, uh, the back end of 2013, I'd saw a gay man in mine, who I knew from my social life, who had transitioned. And I became, I was like, what the fuck, what's going on there? And And then I found gender dysphoria. And then I went back to the psychologist that week and I went, Forget everything else, right? I am 99% sure all my issues are because of gender dysphoria and I'm trans. And he was just like, uh, like, keep in mind, we've just been the week before discussing pure O and how it manifests. And you mean pure OCD, which is the thoughts part of OCD. Yeah. Go, Okay, keep going. So you walk in and you say, I have a new theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's like, okay. And I didn't see this to the end because I was so, at that point, I became, that was a new obsession. And he was just like, you checked out. And he, there was, he was just like, all right, okay. And because I requested me medical notes, I could see what he actually wrote. And what he wrote was, it was like, Richard thinks he's uh, transgender this week. And then the following week, it was... Uh, this week, Richard is now 100% sure, no, not 99% sure, that he is now trans. Uh, but that was as we are coming to the end. And I was like, I'm going to I'm gonna refer to the gender clinic. Um, I'm going to do this, do that. And I was like, oh, thanks for all the help. Could I ask you, at that point, could that psychologist have reached you? No. I think, uh, I think he would, what he should have done, and it wasn't about reaching, it should have been the 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 summarization of of that therapy would have been you're an obsessive individual, right? You need this needs to be guarded against. This is a new obsession, and it wasn't him. He knew just as well. Even then, it was hot water to say who is or isn't trans. 
But he, in in essence, what he did was say, um, he put it in the notes and he was just like, this is an obsession. I'm not going to refer him to the next level. And I think the reason he did everything like that is he must have had this reliance as a mental health professional that when I did get picked up by the gender clinic, they would look at that straight away, but they didn't. And it wasn't as if I went in and hid this from them. I told them from the very start that I was really struggling with OCD stuff. They knew from the beginning that was an issue. And everything everything that I was dealing with with them, um, like the, the OCD was very conditional. That wasn't the, you know, you, you can't be trans and have OCD as well. You know, you're allowed to do that. And they were refusing, uh, like, even entertain that this may be an obsession or anything until after surgery when I approached them and I said, I regret this. And they said, uh, you're having an OCD rumination about regret. Oh, my God. Oh, my that, God. That, that's what pissed me off the most because they said, and I've got it in black and white, and I'd love to, to share it, like, and it was like... Um, I went back, I was I was seeing a gender therapist. I know I'm skipping ahead all over the story here, but I had like 100 uh, uh, therapies, uh, sessions with this uh, gender therapist at the gender clinic um, from 2015 to 2020. Before, just before I, getting on any hormones or before surgery, or just uh, help us understand the timeline. This is important. So, so you go from the psychiatrist who's like, this is a rumination. I'm not referring you on. Then clearly you somehow referred yourself to the gender clinic or just help us right. get there and then tell us about therapy. So to refer to the gender clinic, you need to speak to your doctor and your doctor makes the referral. You can't, that's, that's self-referral. So I rang my doctor and this was when I was living in my old town and I give them a basically a synopsis of my life and I'd to be fair, the doctor was like, noted everything down from the homophobic upbringing. You know, yeah, I knew what she, now reading back the notes, I knew what she was doing. And she was like, this needs looked at, this needs looked at. But she was kind of saying it in a, Richard has experienced this, that and the other, right? Um, in the hopes that the gender clinic would pick it up. Now, this was at the back end of 2013. And I knew there was a 15 month wait to be seen to be given hormones, now, one bit of the story I haven't explained is when I saw that person transition earlier and I went back to the psychologist, it was before then that I found the trans forum. Now, this trans forum, which was run by older males, right, I basically went on, started giving a synopsis of my story and that, you know, they the do that very neutral you, you might be, you might not be. And then um, as I posted a little bit more, what escalated everything, just like it did when I was 12 and 13, was when I shared a picture of myself. And they're like, oh, even cis men are going to desire you. And they were filling my head with all this sort of like, you know, it, it, it was the perfect uh, thing to be told for somebody who's dealing with internalized homophobia. You can be a woman loved by men. And that means you don't Essentially, it means you don't have to be gay, right? And, and it kills two birds with one stone because, A, you get the sexual attraction and connection with men that you desire personally, and yeah. you escape the, the the disgust feeling that you hadn't processed that it's okay to be gay, to be a gay man. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I 
I knew there was a long waiting list. The, the letter came through saying you're on the on the waiting thing. So I started ringing the gender clinic. How long is it going to take? How long is it going to take? And I was really on the case. And I I was adamant to, I really wanted to be seen. And I went back to the forum and I was saying, um, you know, the one says boo-hoo, or me. It's, it's going to take 15, 16 months to get my first appointment. Testosterone is is rotting my poor body. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, they came at me with the 2013-14 interim gender protocols in the UK, which was a change to the service specification for the NHS, which basically meant that um, you could with you could have what's called um, a bridging hormone arrangement. Now, what that meant is you could start hormones before seeing anyone at the gender clinic in agreement with them as long as you had a diagnosis of gender dysphoria at the time it was transsexualism by a pre-approved GP that was registered on the gender recognition list of GPs or some shit. And they basically pointed this out and they said, here's what you do and here's the places you go. And I found a place in Scotland and on March 18th and March 19th, literally one day after the other, I had three appointments. And in those two days, just it was £500 in a payday loan because I was earning very, very little as well. Um, And after I give them that 500 quid, I had my full diagnosis of transsexualism which, the, and I told them I couldn't afford private anything. Now, I only did this to start the blocker because I was obsessed that the blocker was the reason that I was the way I was. Uh, sorry, testosterone was the way that way I was, you know, um, and being on it would kind of help. Um, and then about two weeks after that, they wrote to the gender clinic and me GP and basically said, um, give give him the blocker, um, blah, blah, blah. Here's the here's the guidelines, here's the rules in terms of this is why I've got authority to sort of do it. Um, and I started the Gozerillin, I always butcher I don't know if that's the right way you say it, uh, Zolidex uh, implant, and it goes in the abdomen and it blocks testosterone. Now, this is normally used for cancer patients, prostate patients, um, some women sometimes use it as well for some cancers too. Um, and it, what it basically does is it stops your body uh, or your, your gonads from uh, secreting testosterone. So it kind of still produces it. It just doesn't know what to do with it in a sense, rather than before it's like that needs to go in there and work. But it's like, oh, what do we do with this? So... Um, because I was still waiting, I had no hormones in my body for months and months and months and months. And then eventually in September, because I kept going back to them, I was like, is this safe for me to be on nothing, on absolutely nothing? And they're like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And by September, I was like, I know I'm being seen by the gender clinic, but I am a bit worried now that I haven't been on any hormone for like six, seven months. Um, and yeah, I am blocked, but I'm just wondering, can I have some maybe some estrogen or something just for the health uh, and basically made me case to to get the tablet and they gave us a tablet and they only start you on the lowest dose of these these tablets and they murder on your liver and if you don't get the right levels um of estrogen 
what they do is they just throw more tablets at you until you take like eight or ten a day of these estradiol tablets. But for me at the start, it was only two. And they just never worked. They never registered. And then eventually... Sorry, Kit, when you say they never worked, what do you mean? What do you mean they never worked? The estrogen, it just, the, the... the tablets, the estrogen levels just didn't. Oh, pick when up for you were getting all. your blood tested, the estrogen levels never yeah, yeah, went yeah. up. What were were there any experiences you were having when you were blocking your testosterone production? And just, I'm not sure. Yeah, I know. Crazy, D- does it block the production of all kinds of sex hormones, or specifically testosterone? It's an androgen, so I think any androgens, uh, androgen-based hormones, not just testosterone. So. I think it has a counter impact where it can increase the production of prolactin. Um, or is that with the estrogen? Sorry, I don't want to say any sure. bad signs. Yeah. Okay. Did you did you feel anything initially when I had the blocker? I had a surge of testosterone because that's what happens to people, and I felt immensely confident. And I looked like apps. I looked like a crazy person. Honestly, I had very short hair. I was still quite big and I was, you know, you know how it is when you're a new transitioner, you don't really know how to dress yourself or whatever. And I'm thinking I look, I looked fine. Didn't, I did not look okay. And uh, I just must've looked like an absolute brute loop, crazy, crazy person. People like avoiding us and everything because I just must've looked mental. And you said you felt great. You felt the surge of testosterone, it's almost a survival kind of instinct from the body. Is that right? When when it gets blocked, yeah. Yeah. Um, and also I'm sharing pictures online, but of course it's not, I'm, I'm not sharing pictures like I'm standing now. It's like you take the perfect selfie from the right angle. I'd, I'd never, I didn't mess around with filters, um, but I was all about the angle. So I've got got all these pictures of us from me transition from and I'm like this you know what I mean and it's like it's hard to even gauge what you even look like uh-huh. um so for the first few months especially I was really distorting how I actually looked and I was making sure that I was only going into spaces um that were kind of I knew that when I posted a picture, I was going to get the right positivity back. And I wouldn't I wouldn't do it in anywhere, any uncontrolled space where I might get any criticism because my ego is so fragile. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show. And we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organisation dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. And was this mostly online, or were you also like, I'm going to go into a online. restaurant or a store with my awesome new trans look? It was This was purely an online experiment. This was all online. I was terrified of going outside. I literally went to work, and that was it. 
and eat like it's just it's so important to just kind of keep this juxtaposition in mind because you're going to doctors in real life who are tinkering with your real life hormones so that you can sit behind your computer screen and post photos and i'm not saying that to be critical what i'm saying is this is such a tempting pull that a lot of young people experience and you have this two, it's like you have two separate lives but they're all for the purpose of your online life for your character that your you character because that's what i did okay uh, my my character looks a certain way sounds a certain way like certain interests and that's what i realized it was for me it was it was a character and the character of what i think i should have been rather than who I was and who I was bursting out to be all the time, you know. And uh, you spoke about, you know, your, your, the psychiatrist guy almost affectionately and the, 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 the doctor who you went to. Who would you say didn't treat you well, if you follow me, professionally? The gender clinic, like gender clinic as a whole, the psychiatrist that I paid for, the, the who, who basically you bought the you bought the diagnosis yeah. off him really and and um the, there's a funny one to that because so just to continue on the timeline um in i eventually got seen by a psychiatrist at the gender clinic in february 2015 that's when i officially got enrolled and the first thing she asked me was do you want genital reassignment surgery and I was like, ooh, you know, I've never really thought about that. Can I have some therapy to work it out? Um, which, to be honest, should have been enough for her. I'll be like, oh, I guess, I guess not then. And um, so then a month later, I enrolled with a therapist at the gender clinic. Um, they were just, they were what's called a psychosexual therapist. Um, and I started them for, with March 2015. Um, and you know, I've still got all the enrollment letters on what we're supposed to cover. The <laughs> it's dead funny. The enrollment letter to therapy is drastically different to the discharge letter. It's like the where we started and where we wanted to go to where we ended up is extre extraordinarily interesting. Um anyway, so I'm I was still in a quite a vulnerable state and um by July 2015, I went back to the psychiatrist, it was five months later, and she was like, do you want genital surgery? And I was like, um, possibly, I think so, but I'm a bit worried about, you know, I'm worried about blood, I'm worried about regretting it. I said this to her, I'm worried about uh, complications. So she was like, you've had a lot of misinformation, right? And I was like, what you need to do is you need to go for a second opinion don't worry, this time we'll pay for it back in Scotland, right? Through, and I can't, I, I can't for the life of us, oh yeah, I remember me, it's because to get a second opinion for this, it was either them or I had to go down to London for it or something. And they were like, well, that's closer, so we'll let you, we'll do that one and we'll pay, pay for it. So I brought me mother to that one, right? And uh, my mother's like, uh, she had a word in private with with the person when I went up, and she was like, uh, "You know, he's fucking insane, right?" And you know, he's like got no. She didn't say it like that, right? She was like, <laughs> she said, "He's he's highly depressed. He's got high 
He's on a high dose of SSRIs, like more than 200 milligrams of sertraline, right? I'm not on a small dose. Been on this dose for a long time because I had very intense panic attacks and stuff. And uh, she was like, he's highly diagnosed. I don't know if he's autistic or not. Um, and you just kind of thrown this at him. Do you not think this is a bit dangerous? And she just demolished me mother, like ripped her to shreds to the point where she never wanted to question it ever again because she was just like, she got she got made feel like an absolute bastard. And I kind of, in my heart, knew that's why I wanted to bring her there to because I wanted the, the specialist to tell her that this was real. But it was only my mother from the start. It was actually advocating for us. And honestly, if this was, if I was like 10 years younger, not saying that I would go when I was going through when I was 15, but if I was born in 97 and not 87, my mother would have been an ROGD mother without a shadow of a doubt. She would have been in those groups. She would have been like, you know, she would have been like, this is came out of fucking nowhere. You know, I've got this gifted kid who's very naive and can argue, argue, argue his way out of the paper bag, but he's a little bit too, like, he's captured. He's he's caught by this idea. And then um, me referral for surgery came through later in 2015, and I was like, too fast, don't want to do this, reject it. So they went, okay. And then asked us in 2016, would you like to have surgery? And I was like, Nah, I still want some time to work this out in the therapy, so I continued the therapy. And in 2016, I was, you know, I was on, I was taking all sorts of drugs. I was having random sex encounters, which were arranged by other trans people with all the men as well. I just kind of repeated what I was doing. And uh, they, um, what what was it? Um, the, they'd, they'd contacted the crisis team a few times in 2016 as well because I was just off the rails. Like, and I went down from to a like 11 stone, which for my height was really, I was just because I was I was just like totally cane in it. And um, then in early 2017, I had another few of these instances where there were like, you know ringing the crisis team, whatever. I wasn't suicidal because I hated my body. I was just suicidal because I was, like, in deep distress, right? And I had no idea why. And I'm, like, breaking down all the time in work and stuff. And I had a period where I had to have some time off because I was just so messed up. And then in... Keep in mind, in March 2017, my therapist actually raised the alarm with the crisis team. And then a month later, I'm back at the psychiatrist and just, like... Okay, you're established on your hormones. You've said no to surgery a few times. If you don't want surgery, which is what we're here for, we're a service, then we'll discharge you. Um, but and I and I'm getting therapy and I'm like, well, I need I need well the therapy and she was like, naturally, but if you want if you want surgery again, then you can just re reaffirm. But it was like by that point in 2017, the waiting list for the gender clinic was four years. And I was like, I was like, shit, I'm not. What happens if I change my mind? What happens if I uh, actually do find I want the surgery and all this sort of thing? You kind of felt like the train was leaving the station. and Yeah, yeah. So yeah. she confronted us and I was like, you know what? Okay, uh, I don't want it then. And I ended that therapy, I ended that psychiatric session and I knew I was going to get discharged. 
So literally, I don't know, I can't remember the conversation, but I went back to the therapist a few days later. Don't know what the hell we discussed in there. I can't remember. But it ended in me calling my psychiatrist back to refer us back to surgery. But I'm like the therapist just lit a fire in me ass. It was like, yeah, you know, you're experiencing atrophy. You had all these gay experiences with older men and you don't like the gay experience. Clearly, you've got all this internalized like homophobia and all this sort of thing. And um, it's it's clear that like eventually you're going to need it. And what happens if this, you know, and uh, so I got referred and I really believed I needed that. I really believed I needed it. And then 2018 came, I had the surgery, and within I was I was I had a had a hard recovery and uh in three months, I think it was after the surgery, I started back at the therapy with the gender clinic, the therapist, and I said, dude, I think I regret this. I think this is a really fucking bad idea. And then he laid on the, you've just had general anesthetic, that lowers serotonin levels, therefore this is an OCD rumination. So I came back to him the next week and the next week and the next week saying the same thing. And then about six months later said, it's clear your OCD is pretty bad, so we're going to refer you for OCD therapy. Then I got discharged in 2020, and that's why I'm suing them, you know? Oh, my God. Jesus, Richie. That's the quick version. It's just, it does look like medical negligence. It's just awful mm-hmm. what they they did. So for you, the regret happened very soon after surgery. Oh, yeah, very quickly. It wasn't, there wasn't, I have done the right thing. There was initial in in hospital, so just to explain something, all the fears that I worried about initially in 2015 came true. I had I nearly I had extreme hemorrhaging in surgery. I lost they recorded sixteen hundred milliliters of blood loss, right? And you've got four thousand milliliters of blood in your body. So I'd lost um it was about 35% of my total blood, and then I was still bleeding after surgery. And they waited a couple of days to give us a blood transfusion. Um, and it was a nurse who really was like, you need to give them a blood transfusion because they look fucked. And there was this, I, I don't I don't think I've got it anymore, but I took a photo of the time, and it literally looked like somebody got a syringe and just sucked all the life out of us. And I was like, you know, like skeletal. And um, so I was extremely delirious from that from the pain medication and I couldn't remember much for the first few days and when I did eventually get the blood transfusion transfusion and the pain med started to wear off and I was kind of coming down a bit and uh then I it was when I really started to like look at myself in the mirror and I just looked like I'd been savaged by an it looked like I'd been attacked there there wasn't anything wonderful about it it literally looked like an animal had got on my crotch and it just went a town on it and and I was just like what the fuck have I done and what I also think I can't prove it but I feel like this is I feel like that anti-androgen 
was a big part in like inducing like the psychotic state that I was in the years before where I had all my other trauma as well and this anti-androgen sent me fucking wild and it's no it doesn't it, to me it seems very it just almost too perfect how a few weeks after surgery where you no longer need it and it's wearing off that you start waking up and you're like whoa what the fuck it's like you actually you this isn't a fantasy this isn't a character this isn't a this this whole role play that you you're embedded in that you think is you no it's not it's not and then you're like wow what have i given up what have i actually done and then the shame starts and then the regret kicks in and then for me what i did after after 2019 2020 um, I just poured myself into work. I just went work, 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 and did nothing but work and was deeply focused in it and would distract myself to no end. And then I got to a point where I kind of achieved what I wanted to and I'm reading all these messages in the background and then to, to, I can't encapsulate my day transition because it wasn't just because of what I went through with the gender clinic. It was what I was going through with the trans community, online, offline. It was what was happening under my name as a trans person. It was all the discourse that I just... I, in 2014-15, I was very confident to defend it. And then after my experience and then seeing what was going on, I was becoming really... I was finding it extremely difficult to defend it. And it was when I started looking at the surgery regret stuff, it was banned on Reddit. It, the, all the groups and websites were getting taken down as hate. And the only place I could find any discussion on this was a website which has now been taken down. Um, <laughs> it's not a it's not a good, like, by any means, it's not like a, a bastion of free speech they do. They are very, very, uh, it is a free speech platform, but that comes with all manner of free speech and it is nasty, but it is, you can find whatever there. And um, and then I saw all these surgery things and I was going back to Reddit and I saw that everything was being kind of blocked or you would get talked down or you would get, oh, poor you, but that's not the normal experience. Be careful, transphobes are using it um, against you, sort of, to weaponize other people, um, sort of thing. And then I found the D-Trans community, um, which is a story in itself. And, uh, and then... What, what's that I, story? Oh, God, I don't think we've got the time, but basically in 2021... Someone, um, a gay guy at work, it's dead funny, a gay guy brought us in and a gay guy brought us out. Um, <laughs> all the gay guy at work was just, he posted this uh, day of D-trans thing, right? And at the time I was like, what the fuck is this, right? And I was like, I was really angry because I'm dealing with my own regret. And I was like, I was like, this is, this is some sort of troll. This is, this is some anti-trans thing. And, you know, I was very much in that mindset still. And then a few months go by and in, in the background, I'm still looking at like, like the negative results. So I'm literally in two mindsets and I know, I know I'm dealing with me initial response to it, which is this is anti-trans, this is bad. And the other side, which is desperate for a conversation, desperate to find out there's others like me. And then about three or four months went by and then I found the D-trans community 
um, later 2021. And then I finally joined the Detrons Discord at the end of 2021. And then I started speaking to other Detrons. I wasn't considering myself a detransitioner at that point. And I spoke to a Detrons guy who is about 12 years older than me. There was plenty my age, though, but he, he, nicest dude in the world. And it was just, it was one phrase he said, and it unlocked me, like, completely. It it unlocked me, like, in in terms of I wasn't alone. And what he said was, I woke up one day and I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I can't, whatever this is, I can't do it. And I was like, oh, that is exactly how I feel. I was like, I'm waking up, I'm putting on my voice, a walk. I've got all these different beliefs. I'm restraining my me nature, which is quite, you know, I'm quite explosive and, and I fill out the room sort of thing, you know what I mean? But And I just found myself becoming less and less me and more and more a stranger in, in my own life and body and I, I didn't like it and it wasn't worth it. And these promises of false utopia of like, this is what you do to get to get happy no matter what and it's even a bad result is better than what you had before even though I really didn't want it and that and then and then I'm dealing with all these other issues like addiction and everything else and I was just like fuck fuck this fuck it and I'm sorry for swearing uh, <laughs> and I was just like I I I'm not I can't, I can't do it what, what's the worst that's gonna happen if I um if I let the devil in sort of thing so I uh, shaved my head, not shaved my head, got a haircut, got some new clothes and uh, just tried going back to my old name. And uh, I found, oh, holy shit, I actually like this. I prefer this. Why didn't I try this before? You know, um, but that is the short version of that How long story. of a process was that from like finding that guy's statement to you cutting the hair, going back to your name? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's important yeah. to put that in context, right? Because anybody who's listening, whether you're a dysphoric person or you're the parent of a kid, you know, we hear these stories and people move through the timeline, but this is a long, excruciating process of self-reflection and like waking up and like what's going on and probably oscillation, like good moments, bad moments. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I wish we had infinitely more time with you, Richie, but I don't want to neglect the work you're doing around male detransitioners specifically, and you've talked a lot mm -hmm. about the the position that you guys are in. You're so right. Whenever we hear mainstream media starting to cover detransition, we hear about the girls' stories, we hear about the internalized misogyny, we, or we hear about these things, and the guys get pushed to the side. What do you want people to understand about this experience for males? that anyone any human can be victimized by the belief that all your problems are actually external that is such a tempting tempting construct and just because it yes there are other mechanisms at play but it's a different route way for males and they are just as equally important in this and they get treated as low value or they get treated as the cause and to be honest um there are sex of people who will view um any male as a as highly highly negative 
um, factor in the trans, no matter where you come from in the trans discourse. So whether or not you're a detransitioner or not, you're still a male and you still um, contributed somehow to this thing. Whereas a female detransitioner doesn't get that baggage. And it, it kind of, it it's like a sort of a um, an allegiance to the sex that males are the baddies, females are the goodies. And with that, you cannot be a victim because you are the oppressor. But you have many, mainly autistic, ASD, OCD, um, gay, bi and straight young guys who have got their own issues, trauma, who are vulnerable. And people need to understand something about vulnerability. It doesn't have an age limit. It doesn't turn off when you turn 18 or 25. It doesn't go, oh, you're 25 or 26 now. You're fine. You're good. You're good. Why Why would somebody at the age of 17 and uh, 11 months and three weeks old have um, less authority than somebody who was two weeks older than that kid? What's the difference? Really, what is the difference? You can't put... You can put an age marker on certain things in life, like lottery, alcohol, for a reason, right? Because you may not be able to... A child, for instance, is going to be vulnerable to gambling addiction because it's a very instant win. And then also there are financial issues with that too. Alcohol is a very adverse effect on the body. That's got an age limit. Um, I don't agree like people being able to join the army from a very young age, but there's a reason to do so they can be shaped and formed and uh, the adults of the army's choosing and stuff. But this, this is just something else. And we're just kind of, we'll happily abandon the adults. Like it's, it's an okay to do that. It's okay to, they made their choice They're You know, we've lost all hope for them. Let's focus on the kids. And I'm like, no, Nah, you need to focus on the adults because when you focus on the adults, you inherently will capture the kids too. If you just focus on the kids, you will only stop that happening from them. And you've still got all this huge swathe of people who are desperate and crying out for help, who want the help, who want to detransition. They want the the services to do that, but they get told that the only sympathy available is for children or women. Why would you? Like, what, what's appealing about that? You can come out and get screamed at by all sides, get screamed at and answer to things that you've never even done, answer to crimes for other people and stuff. And it's like, why would you come out as a detrans male? Why would you? The platform is very, very hostile, which is why I do what I do. All Everything I tweet Everything I say, it's not all like like sat and thought out, but most of it is like I need to show people what conversation is, how this conversation is going, whether it's from a trans activist who has been extremely unkind to either a detransitioner, whether it's me or another one, or a radical extremist who, whatever persuasion they come from, who's doing the same. And just like, I want to point it out. And I'm not here to fix it. That's for other people to fix it. I've had enough, you know? Yeah, you talked, and I've heard other male detransitioners also talk about this, like, idea of 
toxic testosterone making me this horrible man and it's it's interesting because there is some of that rhetoric in the farest extremes of certain radical feminist philosophy too so ironically like the same beliefs that perhaps led you into transitioning getting rid of your male characteristics are also used sometimes against guys who are trying to work these issues out and you even said in one of your pieces, it's not the nice, sensitive people who are like doing uh, like that, that need these messages. It's the aggressive people. And frankly, like you're one of the sensitive people. That's why you were paranoid about your masculinity in the first place. Yeah. <sighs> Sorry, I've got nothing. So that was a good summary. So. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask, um, did you pass well as I know at the beginning you said you didn't. Did you pass well as a trans woman for, for those times? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Landed in absolutely fine, yeah. And um, you, you said you kind of had, um, you kind of had passing sex with, with people. And it, w- w- was it okay? W- w- could you have, could you have been happy as a trans person, do you but think? But wasn't that before surgery, yeah, okay. the random sex? Um, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I probably could have been, I think. Um, I think I naturally would have, if I didn't go through surgery, because what I said before surgery, I was worried about detransitioning, ironically, to the therapist. Um, and obviously they were like, you know, stay on course, stay on course. Um, and I was just like, I don't know, I found it, I found it very... Sorry, I've I've lost my train of thought on that one. I was thinking you said something about atrophy, and I didn't know that there was atrophy among males. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Well, what happens is you everything shrinks, and you lose the with that shrinkage. You you lose a lot of functionality. You lose the the what people need to understand is um, the penis itself is behind the foreskin is like there's like a natural little bit of lubricant there to move the foreskin up and down and with everything going smaller that kind of doesn't happen as much so it gets a lot drier down there um and also you know your skin doesn't shrink too so the bit itself is smaller you you've got problems with testicles some people have issues where and it's normally from tucking where they can get like testicles stuck up there and all sorts of nasty stuff. It's like where I'm going is that it's it's nearly like it's you were being pushed once you're taking estrogen once once the testosterone has been blocked, it feels like it's it's almost pushing people towards surgery because of the complications that the the estrogen and the blocking of the testosterone creates yeah. yeah kind of that's what happened to you as far as i could see not only were the therapists but the the hormones were pushing it yeah i mean there was there's so many other factors at play you know um i think if anyone if anyone turns down any major surgery like this that should be enough to raise a red flag not just once but like three or four times um uh, you know and it's like 
people think, well, well, why did you say yes? And I'm like, you don't understand. You just they just don't understand the the power of hormones, the power mm-hmm. of medical professionals telling you this is the right answer, the power of the community, the power of being entrenched to believe that you're fighting a moral cause too. Like there are so many powerful motivating factors. Um, and what vulnerable people need, regardless of how old they are, is they need these measures in place to be like, I think you should sort X, Y, Z out before you even go down this route. There's no way I'm doing it. And the, even the question, why would you do it? It, it almost assumes that you were just like out there floating around by yourself in the world and just like putting stuff in your Amazon shopping cart or something. You visited yeah. a series of professionals and said no yeah. multiple times and were yeah. pushed over and over and over down the line. Yeah. So that is incredibly powerful and you were doing what you should have done, which is you were seeking help, and really you never got it. Mm-hmm. But it's still my fault because I still did it, and that's why detransitioners get caught up because they think, well, I did it at the end of the day. It doesn't matter what anyone else said. It has to be my fault because we love to blame ourselves. We absolutely love to self-blame, and we punish ourselves. And my message is, Yes, I'm not absolving myself 100% responsibility, but I could have easily been caught not just once, but a hun- like plenty of times. There was more than enough times for them to say, we are going to put the brakes on this, and here's why. And there wasn't even that discussion. There wasn't even the question brought to us. Anything in to do with doubt or regret came from me, and it was just like, I don't know, it... it Looking back on it, when when I say it, and I know it happened to me, it feels like it happened to someone else. It, mm. it just it feels bizarre. Mm-hmm. But if anyone's thinking, why did your lawyer take this on pro bono? <laughs> this is why. Because it's absolutely obscene. And to think that this is like, this is happening to more than just me. It's not just me. You know? And what would you say to anybody who's listening, who who's anywhere on your journey as such from being younger or older? Avoid surgeons at all costs. And mm-hmm. I'm not and I'm not kidding you that. Like no matter how bad you think it is down there, there's like I don't know, I mean, I'm not saying that it's very tough because I, in nature, I, I do have a lot of libertarian values and I don't want to restrict anyone from doing something, but I don't want to enable people to hurt themselves. Like in the same way, I wouldn't let an anorexic have a gastric bypass, mm-hmm. uh, um, sorry, bypass. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't let, I don't think it's appropriate for most people to have genital surgery. The vast majority should not be having it the vast majority should have had an investment in ensuring that like um, any neurodivergence was getting taken care of, like and supported um, and also any sort of comorbidities were taken care of before, not only going down this extremely risky and dangerous procedure, but expensive too, right? It's expensive for the health service to do this. It's like 20 grand a pop. 
And then you add in all the hospital stuff, the aftercare, the the tests, the, what, everything, you know, it's not cheap. Surely commissioning a psychotherapist for a year is cheaper than that. And it's like, why? What's the problem? Like, it's like, oh, it's safeguards and all that sort of thing. And I'm like, yeah, we need them. There's a reason why doctors don't cut off people's arms for the crack, mm-hmm. you know? Do you think if you hadn't had surgery, you would have just kept on living as a... I would have desisted. You would have. What do you think would yeah. have been the trigger point in that case? Uh, not having surgery. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I think I was like, well, I'm, if I'm going to continue down this path... That really symbolized I I... like a final place in the trans process for you, was the surgery. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. So, some people seem to respond to surgery. It seems to see hormones are so gradual. They come in, you know, gradually and the changes happen gradually. And I've just heard so many stories from detransitioners, the kind of the the brick wall of surgery brought them into detransition, if you follow me. It was just a, a slamming face against brick reality. Oh god, yeah. Yeah, that I sometimes think it'll be only surgery that will will bring that person out if you follow me and i know that's not anybody wants to hear that but i sometimes it passes through my mind as a concept that there's something about the brutality of it that so many detransitioners just go oh my god i got the surgery and then i then i saw what was going on that is interesting because the people in the detrans males group who didn't get surgery they started waking up when they started seeing the bad surgical results when they started getting because they were like me they weren't they weren't weren't keen to look at this before surgery at all because they were getting sold this idea until somebody said you need to check this thread out on the site or you need to check this out or this report and then they look at it and they're like what on earth no one told me that's what happens no one told me you deal with that no one told me like there was not any conversation about like internal hair growth. There was no conversation about the fact that you you know you're going to be in absolute numbness on the outside. You're going to be completely numb, and that's normal. You know, there's like a high chance that you're never going to orgasm ever again. You know, there's a high chance that you're going to lose all sensation internally. Do you know there's a high chance you're going to get urinary issues? You're, you're going to get infections, um, and like. You, you don't quite com- understand any of these things when you're addicted to drugs and you are not in a good place and you are borderline psych. Well, I felt psychotic. That's the only way I can describe it. Um, and it's just like at the end of it, it when you regret it, a lot of people I think. Um, just take their own lives and then those deaths get martyred as trans deaths and uh the circle jerk continues because people are so ashamed of speaking out about it about the regret people will not that that's why people will take their own lives especially because the the shame is so overpowering but if you can dispel that shame and say actually yeah, you might have a little bit of responsibility, but it's not all on you. There are other people at play here. And the second that you give males that permission, they will take it because we are a permission-seeking bunch. Wow, Richie. Uh, I don't think there's a better place we could end it than there. 
We're very grateful for your story and for sharing your experience with us. And we think that the work you're doing and your Substack and everything that you've been able to illuminate for us is helping way more people than we realize. We're very grateful. No, thank you. That's very kind. It's true. Thanks, Richie. Thanks. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 